Thanks for joining us this week, and welcome to Mutuality Matters, a weekly podcast hosted by CBE International, where our mission is to promote the biblical message that God calls women and men of all cultures, races, and classes to share authority equally in service and leadership in the home, church, and work. Enjoying the podcast? Let us know. Send a recording or written testimonial to podcast at cbeinternational.org of why Mutuality Matters matters to you, and we may feature you on an upcoming episode. The opinions expressed in CBE's Mutuality Matters podcast are those of its hosts and guests and do not purport to reflect the opinions or views of CBE International or its members or chapters worldwide. The designations employed in this podcast and the presentation of content therein do not imply the expression of any opinion whatsoever on the part of CBE concerning the legal status of any country, area, or territory, or of its authorities, or concerning the delimitation of its frontiers. Let's get into this week's episode. Welcome back, everyone. My name is Erin Moniz, and I'm here with my co-host, Blake Dean, and you are listening to New Voices of Mutuality Matters, hosted by CBE International. Today, we have with us Dr. Amy Peeler, who is an associate professor of New Testament at Wheaton College and an associate rector at St. Mark's Episcopal Church in Geneva, Illinois. She is the author of You Are My Son, The Family of God in the Epistle to Hebrews, and the co-author with Patrick Gray of Hebrews, an Introduction and Study Guide. Most recently, Dr. Peeler published her book, Women and the Gender of God, a robust theological argument against the assumption that God is male, and fortunately, the work we are going to discuss with her here today. So to get things started in this new year, um, let's do some watch, read, or listen. So Blake Dean... What are you watching, reading, or listening to? Okay, so for this week's Watch, Read, or Listen, I am simply going to repeat something that I texted a friend of mine yesterday, which is the music I've been listening to is moody classical or folksy Americana. So it's been a lot of Bach and then a lot of like Andrew Bird, Bob Dylan situations. Okay, reasons? Which... uh, have no idea. Just preference. Just that's what you're. That's what yeah, you're vibing that's just, with right now. I either want the cantatas or I want the like protest songs. Yeah. Okay. What about Fantastic. you? Fantastic. <laughs> well, um, I actually, and and I think this will be something I'd like to recommend to our listeners uh, since since this is airing at the beginning of of the new year. Um, I just recently finished a book by Matthew Sleaf called uh, 24-6. So he wrote a book about Christian um, environmental stewardship that I read years ago. And this one is about Sabbath and about rest. And this is sort of my year of like trying to figure out rest. And um, and so it was a lovely book. So it's called 24-6 instead of 24-7 um, and by Matthew Sleeth. And I, I've really, I've really enjoyed that. Um, so, so Amy, what are you watching, reading, or listening to? Yeah, so on my bedside table right now is a book called Mother of the Lamb by my friend and colleague here at Wheaton and Matthew Milliner. Do you guys know of him or I'm seeing your reaction? I do, and I want to read that book so bad. <laughs> like after reading your book, that's the book I want to go to next. Precisely. Yeah. So maybe yeah. we could get into this, but those books actually started their lives as one book together. We were going to co-author oh. together. Um, and that didn't end up working out. And so, but yet they kind of took their own paths and to us, which was an amazing, just felt like God's favor to us. They ended up being published on the same day, even though we had different Ugh. 
partners and had gone through these long journeys. And so I have loved reading it because of our friendship and teaching together. I know a lot, but to see it in the way that he puts the text, if readers aren't aware, it's the story of a very common Marian icon, the uh, mother of perpetual help, and the story of how it was painted and how it has traveled across the world. It is really a fascinating kind of theology of art uh, book with this specific example. So I highly recommend it. Oh, well, I that literally is a, can't wait to read it. And that is a perfect segue <laughs> into our first question. I love that because, um, because it relates in ways to your book. Our first question, and uh, listeners who haven't read the book yet, I think this will be uh, significant for you. Um, so Women in the Gender of God argues against the assumption that God is male. However, you do so in ways that bring Mary, um, the mother God, into the discussion in profound ways. And, and anybody who's been a longtime listener to the podcast will know that Blake and I have always been really fascinated mm -hmm. um, with the integration of Mariology into um, and just the Protestant world that we both are mm -hmm. are in. And so listeners, you can you can go back to our Advent episode uh, in 2019 and hear our very first time really diving into these wow. musings about Mary. So I love that we're kind of coming full circle. Um, but this book has so much about Mary in it. I think I was surprised early on and, and, and pleasantly so and refreshed um, by the content um, about how much Mary is featured in this book. So we would love for you to just give our listeners um, a taste of why, first of all, Mary is important um, and maybe especially why Protestants um, in particular shouldn't uh, dismiss mm. the level of importance Excellent. that she is. I'll try to be succinct in my answer, but uh, Dr. Miller and I teach a 15-week course on Mary, Mother mm. of God, here at Wheaton, a flagship Fantastic. evangelical Protestant institution. And so I have 15 <laughs> weeks worth of material, but I'll seek to be brief. Uh, you know, maybe I'll start by saying kind of my own journey in this subject. Mm. And I recognize that the title of my book maybe doesn't immediately say, hey, this is going to be largely an exegetical exploration of Mary's story, but I would hope that the cover image kind of tips people off. It is yes. a beautiful icon of Mary and the Christ child. We can speak more about that if you'd like. But the way it happened for me is that I was discovering the beauty of fatherhood language for God in Hebrews in particular. That was the focus of my dissertation. At the same time, reading feminist and womanist theologies, Murista theologies that said, hey, fatherhood language for God is sometimes complicated and sometimes really damaging. And I was mm -hmm. listening to these two things and I didn't know how to put them together. As I started that research, I realized that there is a way in which one can be attentive to the maternal imagery for God, which is given us in scripture, and that can be really helpful. Alternatively, one could look at the fatherhood language and say, yes, but God is not a father like we know it. It's not projection up. It's God's relationship then comes down to us. And I find those approaches helpful to a degree. But then for me, and really what the book is doing is saying the best way that we understand who God is, and this is true generally, I think all of the time, is by looking to the incarnation, right? God has revealed God's Amen. self in creation, in relationship with Israel, in the scriptures, and yet the lens for us as Christians is always the revelation of the Son. And mm -hmm. I think that applies to gendered language for God 
just exactly true in that way. So when we press into the incarnation, namely the reality that God came into the world by being born of a woman, that's actually how we get purchased on understanding fulsomely and correctly what we mean when we call God, who the Father, who is not embodied and is not gendered, who is spirit, why would we call God Father? And how do we do that rightly? I think it's mm. the incarnation that leads us in that direction. So in one hand, I couldn't understand that language without paying attention to Mary. Mm. And another then, because I am so passionate for telling women within the church, hey, if you've had negative experiences, I don't think that's actually the message of what the Bible has and how God works. I recognize it is prevalent, but it is not correct. Uh, Learning about her. She's not just kind of one example among many. And we do have many examples of amazing women in scripture. Mm. She stands at the center of our story. Were it not for her yes to God, as communicated uh, through Gabriel, then the incarnation would have played out in a different way. She's pivotal Mm. to our most central and simple doctrines. And so you cannot talk about Christianity without talking about her. I recognize that for Protestants, many of us grow up with Marian absence or we're nervous because we have heard that maybe people worship Mary. Um, I I hear that. And in some spaces Mm. that has been true. But I think the loss is so much more detrimental and that there are ways to incorporate her into our story and faithful practices in ways that push us actually into a deeper appreciation and worship of God. And I think that's what your book does so um, profoundly, but um, in an accessible way. You really do walk, at least for me as a Protestant reader who did grow up with not only um, an absence of conversation about Mary, but also a hesitation and anxiety about Mary. Um, You we don't just dive into the deep end, but you really do lay the groundwork that makes it easy for readers to join you in your, not only your logic um, and your argument, but also the way that we understand the incarnation of Christ, which which is in itself the beginning and heart of the gospel. And I, I so appreciate that. I, I'd love to kind of drill down a little bit even more on this idea that you mentioned of there's a way that we can Um, speak about Mary, understand Mary, that both gives us um, purchase to God as father in a distinct way, but also that we can, we can involve an understanding of Mary back into our practices or our theology um, in a way that doesn't, that ought not give us pause. Could you speak maybe a little more specifically about that idea? Sure, sure. So maybe I'll begin with the fatherhood language. I was very challenged, especially by theologian Lynn Marie Tonstad, and you'll see her in my footnotes. Um, She is uh, a theologian that has uh, provocatively raised hard questions for Christian theology, but yet it seems to me with a deep appreciation of the beauty of the Christian narrative. And I was so challenged by her critique of fatherhood language I felt like, wow, if I could provide an answer to her critique, I really could have a solid answer for why we could retain this language. I don't know that Mm -hmm. I've achieved that, but I certainly have tried. And it was her Mm -hmm. work that provoked me. 
She really said, if we go along the pathway of saying, God is a father, but not like we know fathers, not really like we know fathers, the const- the constantly canceled out father looms in the background and you're only mm. assuming what you're seeking to deny. I felt that yeah. was such an apt critique. And so as I pressed into the exegesis of the incarnation, it became a realization for me that actually when we call God Father, we do so because God is the revealed Father of Jesus Christ. And actually that is correct language because God has caused the taking on of flesh uh, of the Son, caused the birth of this child by partnering with a woman. Isn't that the definition of what fathers do? And so we aren't just denying what that word means. That's that's a, a, a misuse of common sense language. We're actually saying, yes, that is the case. And that's why it was really important for me to start with chapter one of my book, which might seem like a truism that God is not male. And and to really say the annunciation narratives as recorded by Matthew and Luke are go very intensely to say this is not sexualized. So what we have is a being who causes the birth of a child with a woman, but not in a sexualized way. Hence, I can get to the shorthand of saying God is father, but God the father is not male. And I recognize that as paradox, but I hope I've given enough um, tracing of my pathway that that a reader could follow along and disagree or, or maybe be persuaded it is my hope. So that's how the incarnation helps me with fatherhood. And then in liturgical practice, when I proclaim God as father, I'm not only doing so because the text of the New Testament does so all of the time. I mean, for me, this is part of the answer. We can attend to maternal imagery for God, but we have to recognize that is a minority report. Shouldn't be denied, but we have to deal with this vast major- majority of paternal language. I mm-hmm. can affirm that language because when I do so, and I think I have kind of one sentence in the book that says this, by calling God Father, we're actually leaving space for or assuming the space of the fact that the son had a mother. We're we're evoking that familial connections. Mm-hmm. And that actually came out of my dissertation. Um, no one had done much with God as Father in Hebrews, but for me, every time son is evoked, we're assuming the relational counterpart. And so I'm kind of making a similar move here. When we God, call God father, we are assuming a relational counterpoint of the son's mother, who is Mary of Nazareth. So we're living space for that, for that encounter. And for me then liturgically, that has been incredibly empowering. And so I do, as you mentioned, serve as a priest. I grew up Southern Baptist and now I'm Episcopalian. That's another story maybe for another time. But, um, but as we are in the worship space week by week, as we are proclaiming the story of Christ's incarnation, death, and resurrection, she has become so present for me in my worship mm. moments because I know that this is how God chose to enter the world, which has, as a female, been an even deeper encouragement of my full participation and welcome in those spaces. Ah, yes and amen. Um, that That... I, and I mentioned this before we start recording, but but your attention to Mary and, and all of the connections you just mentioned has has been really ministered to me mm-hmm. through this book, and so I, I recommend it to to um, our listeners who are are wanting to who are hearing you speak and want to be like, how does that work? Let's right. dig into more right. of that. Like, we'll have a link in the show notes, and you can go Fantastic. and get her book, which we mm-hmm. highly recommend. CBE International presents Women in Scripture and Mission. Risking both her reputation and her very life, Mary courageously accepted God's plan to make her the teenage mother of Jesus. 
Throughout Mary's life, she proclaimed the deep truths of God, encouraged her son to begin his ministry, stood by him through the devastating crucifixion, and became a rock of the early church. Learn more at RadioWomen.org. Now, another thing that your book addresses that I think is particularly valuable for, for listeners of this podcast is... Um, I, so when, when I usually talk to undergraduate students about like themes of gender theology in Christianity, I talk about these different categories and, and how there's on, on the one side, um, traditionally, uh, like uh, complementary and patriarchal traditionalists. And then, um, we also have a lot of content from post-Christian feminists on, on the other hand, and how, um, CBE and, and this podcast, we all, we kind of try to find a, a middle way that is different because we recognize that those two polar opposites actually retain the same presupposition, the yes. ideas that the Bible Bible is irredeemably patriarchal, and one says, right. therefore, we must obey it, and the other says, therefore, we must reject it wholesale. Right. Um, and then we say, well, we we don't believe that here. We believe that patriarchy, yes, has a, like a historical wallpaper of mm-hmm. um, of what we understand in Scripture, but that it is not uh, uh, prescriptive in that way. And so, you know, the anyway, who's listening? They know every podcast we do is is basically addressing this. But what I love in your book is that. Um, you address both of these sides of of the argument um, in your writing. And I found this so refreshing and interesting because consuming a lot of um, the writings from these different groups myself, I was like, oh, this addresses both sides um, with a lot of care and consideration. And you state um, uh, in your book, you said, taking seriously the questions raised against the tradition Mm -hmm. allows an even firmer confirmation of the tradition. Mm -hmm. So um, the fact that you address critiques of both patriarchal theological assumptions and post-Christian feminist mm-hmm. deconstructionists, uh, can you talk to us about why it's important mm-hmm. not only to counter these arguments, but to first take them seriously? Mm-hmm. Uh, th- you know, this this is one thing that has been just a deep encouragement to me in the last two months since the book has come out, um, that people have recognized this way of reading and mm-hmm. I don't know that I set out intentionally to be or do it this way, but I've been just overwhelmed with great with gratitude that it has come that it is presented in this way. I think it is a feature of being taught by people and places who have given me the skills of intellectual inquiry and intellectual humility that I, I, it probably goes back to like my Western Civ courses in my Christian undergraduate liberal arts institution <laughs> that we were taught to read widely, to not be afraid of encountering any intellectual movement, and yet to see in them all an expression of the Imago Day. Now, I don't know mm-hmm. that I would have had that language as a 20-year-old um, sophomore, but but now, theologically, that's how I would categorize it. No one is past the pale of being imprinted by God. And Mm -hmm. so if that is true of their humanity and even their intellectual work, then we can find evidence of goodness and truth in all. And so, and I think it's existing in spaces, right? I'm kind of a funny bird in that I'm here at Wheaton, an evangelical institution. So I tend to be engaged with those on the more right side of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. And I usually feel like I'm pushing left and, Mm -hmm. and yet I'm, you know, have brothers and sisters that would disagree with me, but yet we are united on a common mission. And then Mm -hmm. in my church settings as an Episcopalian, most people (laughs) are to the left of me and I am 
the conservative in some ways, and that's a little bit more uncomfortable hat for me to wear, but I'm learning it. Mm -hmm. And they are beautiful and gracious, and the spirit is at work in them. And I love having a foot in these two pretty different worlds in which I have real relationship. And so I think as I read literature, I could imagine friends and colleagues who might be similar to whom I was reading. And because I had experienced their humanity, I could more easily imagine the full humanity of the people I was reading. Uh, Moreover, I think especially the post-Christian, that's kind of the quote you read. That's really what I had in mind there. Mm -hmm. I think the the blessing of things like feminist uh, theology, even the post-Christian philosophies of religion, they will name things with a clarity and a frankness that sometimes I'm hesitant because I'm still part of this group. I may not be as forthright in calling attention to the failures. And uh, people like, I mean, Mary Daly is often cited, but, but I have a number of of uh, scholars with whom I'm interacting that decided, hey, I had to leave Christianity. But yet they say, here's what's messed up about (laughs) your interpretation of these scriptures. And to really listen, if Christians then can have a response, we've Mm. we've actually been able to name our own mistakes. And I found Mm. that so freeing. Uh, And then those to the right of me, I think there is a desire, again, to hold a high authority of scripture, which I do, and I appreciate the consistency with which that happens. I end up interpreting differently, but I appreciate that approach. And I think there's a beauty on that side in, and I want to choose my words carefully here, but celebrating the difference between men and women. I think I have come through the academy in such a way that I've often found myself arguing for a place at the table for women. And so I've emphasized sameness between men and women. And I, in the last maybe even five years, have learned that I need to grow into, there are some distinctives, very hesitant to define any of what that is, but there are some distinctives that need to be celebrated. And I feel like those on that side help me keep me honest in remembering that fact yeah I agree and I think maybe even less to you and more to the listeners I think if even outside of the argument and the well-documented footnotes and the clarity of prose I think if there's a reason even more so than those to read the book it is it is it is a formation in charity. Mm-hmm. It is a formation in charitable reading. I felt the same way reading your book as I did reading Dr. Carnes um, from Baylor's Motherhood. Yeah. As both of you are do, it it's both a clarity of thought, but an exercise in charity that makes me a more charitable thinker on the other side of it. And I think that there's an intellectual honesty and integrity that comes with that and intellectual humility. But, but also... Um, you know, we, we're, we're talking gender theology on this podcast right. in this world, and it, but it also reminds us of the most important parts of that work, right? Mm-hmm. Which is um, doing so to maintain and proclaim not only the gospel, yes. but the image of God in one another. And I think if we lose that in the process, we've actually had a massive exercise in missing the point. Mm-hmm. And I, um, I'm so grateful for your work on that front. And I think you do so um, both excellently and formatively. I feel like I'm a more charitable reader after reading your books and your footnotes, Um, which is where some of that charity comes in is those footnotes of going, the unnecessary ways of going, well, this person would disagree with what I just said. But if you want to hear that argument, go read it here. I think that's so 
I'm grateful for that. So thank you. Um, maybe maybe to um, begin to land the plane on the conversation, um, you mentioned that you're um, a priest in the Episcopal Church. So you clearly have a particular opinion about women's ordination. Um, and there's um, other people who have other particular opinions. Um, but for those of our listeners who come from more pre-church backgrounds, mm. there's an argument against women's ordination that's not as common. I certainly didn't grow up with it. And now that I'm in a more liturgical high church spaces, I, I'm confronted with it more, which is that because Christ was male, mm-hmm. only males can represent him, and maybe particularly in the Eucharistic act, right. um, but in liturgy and sacrament and in leadership. Um, how is this assumption misguided in your view? And then maybe if we could touch on how you address this in your book. Certainly, right. And this was not how I grew up either, right? Existing in Southern Baptist world for m- most of my life, we, we were confirmed in the Episcopal Church around the age of 28. And so the, all the first part was there. Um, and and maybe I, I would like to name as well very quickly I think some readers might be frustrated of like, hey, I'm a Protestant. Why don't you talk about First Timothy 2 in this book? <laughs> um, I did originally. Originally, this book had five more chapters in which I was trying to do all of that work. And both of my blind reviewers, and I think very correctly said, you cannot do everything in one place. I cut all of that material and I'm now working on that for volume two. And so there will be an incarnational reading of the debated Pauline text that will be more uh, attentive to Protestant conversations. But I feel like that is such well-worn territory. I wanted to start with a different conversation and Mary just changes the dynamic. And so I began there. So in Persona Christi, as uh, the drama of the liturgy is played out, the priest represents Christ. And what is very prominent, in at least some aspects of this theology, is the kind of marriage metaphor of Ephesians 5, that Christ is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. Or you will find in some expressions that because he chose 12 male apostles, then that line of um a priestly continuation happens for men alone. What I think, I think I have a line there that says it's not bad to pay attention to Jesus, but I don't think there's been enough attention to the mode of the incarnation. And for me, it was completely transformative to think about the embodiment of our Lord that he is male, but his tether to humanity, any connection that he has to humanity in an embodied way comes from Mary alone. Now, admittedly, of course, the Holy Spirit is involved. We know how DNA works. There's some mystery there, but there's no other human. I mean, Matthew and Luke are as clear about this as they can possibly be. And this becomes then our doctrine. Joseph is not involved. There is not a male involvement in the embodiment of the son, only her. And so there is this amazing, it seems to me, embrace of both male and female in the body of our Lord. I think Mm -hmm. I need to do some more work there. I want to take that into Galatians 3.28 and play that out a bit. But here I'm only affirming what the tradition has always said, that this is true about his identity. If then it is the case that his body embraces both men and women in this mysterious, beautiful way, should not then those who represent him do the same? And so it seems to me that the one who stands at the table, uh, my my male colleagues, 
they look like Jesus uh, in a way that I do not. But I could serve as a reminder of the way that he came into the world. And as I put on those vestments, which have a big cross, I put on the identity of Christ, as do they. Uh, And so I think there is... It's my own position that those who worry about losing the distinctions between men and women when um, either men and women can play any liturgical role, actually in context and when both men and women can be in this role, I think you have a clearer expression of bodily difference. You have in the same vocation, both a male and a female, and we are different. And that's a powerful thing. Uh, Praise God. I really, and I, I say it toward the conclusion, but in the reading and writing of this book, which at times was very hard, very hard to read those voices on either end of the spectrum that said I was stupid, either for being a woman or being a Christian or both. It was the table each week where I received the grace of the Lord and said, you are not second class for who you are. And I have invited you here. Sometimes we'll say the prayer of humble access. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table, which of course is the is the language of the Syrophoenician woman. But you are the Lord whose property is always to show mercy. And that continual mercy kept me going through the dark days of this project. Well, another yes and amen is such a wonderful place um, to to round out our podcast episode today. Although I know Blake and I could probably spend a lot more time talking with you about this book because we we have loved it and we want to um, encourage readers to go pick it up. We will have a link in the show notes. And um, we also want to give you a chance if there are future projects you would like to let our listeners know about ways that they can follow or support your work. Um, just do some some shout outs uh, for, for anything that, that we can connect uh, with you. I will do so. Yeah. The the next thing on my horizon, which I've been working on for a few years, is I have a commentary on Hebrews, God willing, that I'll turn in in the next month or so. And uh, the fun thing about Hebrews is that it says nothing about gender. (laughs) And so all of the (laughs) angst that that I have on this side of my life, I can just think about... I don't know, the heavenly temple in Hebrews, Uh, although I find ways in which the affirmation of both men and women is really present there, but it allows me to to do something different. So I appreciate these two sides of my scholarly life. Well, that is that is wonderful. Are you on any of the social medias where people could? I am. Uh, yes, yes. You? Sorry. So um, I'm yeah. on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Um, uh, ALB Peeler. My I include the, the initial of my maiden name are my handles in those places. I do have a website as well, Amy Peeler, uh, that uh, my husband, who's more techie, does a really good job of talking about all the different places where I'll be speaking. And I do have several engagements coming in the next several months. So you can check wonderful, out that as wonderful. well. Wonderful. Yeah, we'll put all of that in the show notes. Thank you. Thank you so much. And um, thank all of you listeners for joining us today. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so that you can hear weekly from our other co-hosts and other themes that we, um, as we develop content on gender theology for the gospel empowerment of men and women. Um, And be sure to follow CBE International on Facebook and Twitter. You should also go to their website at uh, cbeinternational.org for even more content. Subscribe to their blog, magazine, and academic journal. Watch videos and listen to audio of past conferences and events. And you should go visit their bookstore where you can find a ton of talented authors and subjects that will enrich your faith and equip you to use your God-given talents and leadership and service to the gospel for all, regardless of gender, ethnicity, or class. And we would like to thank Landon, our support tech, and the team at CBE International that makes this podcast possible. 
I am Aaron Monez with my co-host Blake Dean, and we are Mutuality Matters. Thank you for listening. Looking for more information about CBE in our mission for biblical equality? Then please visit cbeinternational.org for more information. And please be sure to tune in each week for new episodes here or wherever else you listen to podcasts.